Welcome to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoyed this message by Pastor David Eldridge. We are glad that you guys are here this morning. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Matthew 2. So we'll read a story, super familiar. It happens somewhere 6 to 24 months after Jesus' birth, so not immediately somewhere, probably more towards the two-year range than the six-month range. You know this story about the wise men visiting Jesus. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw a star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he called together all the the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So uh, we want to look today, uh, just briefly, three reactions to the birth of the king. What are the three different ways people reacted to the birth of the king? We see in Herod, his reaction is predictable. Uh, he's disturbed. That word is he's, he's agitated. Um, he's, he gets irritated. He gets unsettled. It's, it's a strong word, maybe a bit more than what we think of when we think of disturbed. He was pretty upset, and rightfully so for him. He's the king. He's been installed by the Roman emperor, and so when he hears there's another king, he sees that as a threat to his own power and to his own control. Towards the end of his life, he got hyper-paranoid about coups. Um, he, 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 had, he had multiple wives. He wound up killing his favorite wife. He wound up killing several of his sons and some other folks who were in the court, all because he was he, he was paranoid. He was afraid that they were going to try to take the throne from him. And so the, the reaction that we see with him ordering the slaughter of every male child up to two years of age born in Bethlehem, uh, that's, not, that's not out of character for him. Like that's, that's not even the worst thing that he did. That's in keeping with the character that we see uh, history records, particularly towards the end of his life. He's scared. He wants to hold on to control. He wants to hold on to power. He hears that there's a potential threat to his rule, this one born king of the Jews. He's, he thinks, hey, that's, that's my job, that's my title, the emperor's given that to me, and I don't want anybody trying to take it from me. His response, pretty predictable. The response of the chief priests and the teachers of the law, this one to me is pretty interesting. Uh, their, their, their response to me is pretty disappointing, honestly. So these guys, their, their, their livelihood and their life was given to preparing themselves and the Jewish people for the coming of the Messiah. That's what they've been looking forward to for hundreds of years. 
From the time of Malachi to the time of Matthew, there's a 400-year period, and it's called by many the silent years. There, were, there weren't prophets um, during that time. And so the, the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, they really came to prominence. They had the Old Testament, and they helped everybody understand it. And they began to put together the, this, the pieces, paint the picture of who the Messiah would be and what the Messiah would do. And so you would think when they hear the Messiah is born just five or six miles away, you're talking about a two-hour walk, that's it. Just right down the road, the Messiah is born. You would think as people who had given themselves to studying the Old Testament, preparing themselves, preparing their people for the arrival of the Messiah, that they'd at least be curious there would at least be enough interest in them to take a couple of hour walk to check it out. But there's no, there's no indication in any of the Gospels that they go to Bethlehem to see what's going on. I mean, maybe it's, maybe it's arrogance. Maybe they're thinking, hey, if God's going to tell somebody about the Messiah, if somebody's going to get a heads up, it's not going to be these, this godless group of Gentile, you know, astrologer, astronomer folks. It's going to be us. He didn't let us know, so it's probably... A hoax, probably not true. Maybe, again, there's this part of them that's thinking, we're the ones that know about this. And so, again, it's going to come through us, not through this group of Gentiles. You would think the fact that there's some level of it fulfilling at least this Micah 5 prophecy about Bethlehem, maybe that would be enough to, again, at least pique their curiosity, but, but it's not. I also wonder, maybe, maybe it's a combination arrogance and complacency. Those things tend to go hand in hand. It had been a long time coming, waiting for the Messiah. I'm thinking they probably got pretty comfortable in their routine and in their life. They had a, they had a, a decently prominent place within Jewish society that both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, for different reasons, they were respected and honored. For, di for different reasons, again, they had a place of of prominence in their society. And so maybe the idea of a king coming, maybe that's upsetting to the status quo for them. Maybe they're wondering, you know, what's going to be my place in this new order? I don't know. But it's, it, it, to me, it's a pretty disappointing statement to think that these guys, again, who had been preparing for this and theoretically have been looking forward to this moment can't walk a couple of hours just to see if there's any validity to it. And then we have the appropriate response, which is, the wise men, there's a predictable response from Herod, there's a disappointing response from the religious leaders, and then an appropriate response from the wise men. What do they do? They seek Jesus out, and then they worship him. Who are the wise men? Again, they're Persian astrologers slash astronomers. They're people that studied the stars, and then they would advise the king based on what they were seeing. So again, part of it is astronomy, and part of it is astrology, and they would use what they were seeing in the in the sky to, to speak to the king and to give him advice. So they were probably high, high caste people. Were there only three? Nobody knows. The reason people say there are three is because there were three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. There certainly were more than three people traveling. These guys would have had an entourage for sure, and there easily could have been more than three of them. They just brought three gifts, and all of those gifts are fit for a king. Those are gifts that you would give to to a king. So they, they traveled probably 900 miles, so it would have taken them a while to get there. And they traveled to Jerusalem. Why? Because Jerusalem's the capital city. So if a king's going to be born, most likely it's going to be in the capital city. And they go to the, they, they go to the king and they say, okay, where, where's, where's your successor? Where's the, where's the king of the Jews that was 
that is to be born, and they're told from the religious leaders, Bethlehem, that's a prophecy from Micah 5, and so they take the five or six mile journey there. You may say, like, what's, what's prompting them to do this? What are they seeing? Nobody knows. Uh, we're told it's a star, two major options. It could have been just a supernatural creation by God for that moment. It's not a star that existed prior to or after. It was just for the wise men. If that's your leaning, I would lean more towards angel than anything else. Angels oftentimes in the Bible are described as stars. And the fact that this star moves uh, makes me think, well, maybe it was an angel, a messenger. We see angels having a lot of activity around the birth of Jesus. If you want to lean more towards a natural phenomenon that, that God used... Uh, there were several uh, planetary alignments, both in 7 B.C. and 3 B.C. Jesus was born right around there. Unfortunately, he wasn't born at zero. Somebody did the wrong math on that. So sometime 7 B.C., 3 B.C., Jesus was born. Um, and there were these two different rare astronomical Phenomenons: Jupiter and Saturn lined up in 7 BC and Jupiter and Venus lined up in 3 BC. And both of those things would communicate to guys that studied that kind of thing. There's a king born in Judea. So either way, we don't know, but it was enough to compel these guys to travel 900 miles to honor a king who wasn't their king. They're Gentiles. They know he's the king of the Jews and still they are, they're, they're impelled, compelled to to take this long and dangerous journey in order to worship him. It says a lot about their, at least their openness, uh, if nothing else. I do think it's interesting that God speaks to them through the stars, and that's the language that they know. Regardless of what it was, whether it was an angel or a natural phenomenon, whatever it was, God spoke to them in a, in a way that would get their attention in a language that they knew. They knew the language of the stars, and that's how God chose to speak to them, which is, I hope, encouraging for you as you're praying for people. You wrote names on those cards, people that you're praying for that don't know Jesus, and you're, you're praying that God would make himself known to them. Recognize he desires to reveal himself, and he knows all, he knows all the languages, and he knows how to speak to us in a way uh, that we can understand. So I do hope that encourages you. Uh, today. So we got these three responses. We've got a predictable one, a disappointing one, and an appropriate one. So for us, what are we talking about here? What are the, the takeaways for us uh, as we move back into a, a little time of worship to close our, uh, our Sunday morning, our last Sunday of 2021? A couple of things for you to keep in mind. One, acknowledge the fact that we all are prone to fall into the same traps that Herod and the religious leaders did. Like, it's easy for us on this side of history, sitting here in this room, to look back and to judge people and say, I wouldn't have done that if I were them. But the bottom line is most likely we would have because we do what they do all the time. We don't order the slaughter of an entire village. We don't have the power to do that. But what we do is we do try to suppress Jesus as the king. We don't want him to be the king a lot of times. We love Jesus as a savior. We love Jesus as a healer. We love Jesus as a shepherd and as a friend. But when it comes to Jesus as a king, we start to get a little twitchy about that. We like to control our own lives. As adults, we've been, we've been raised to be self-sufficient, to be autonomous, to be independent, to make our own decisions. That's what we call being an adult. It's making your own way. Kids are really good at this. For adults, it's very difficult for us to willingly yield control of our lives, particularly the areas that are most important to us. Very difficult for us in anything other than in word only to acknowledge Jesus as king. Just like Herod, there's one throne and we want to sit on it. 
And if we're on it, he's not. And if he's on it, then we aren't. And again, that becomes tricky. We love that Jesus forgives us of our sins. We love that he gives us eternal life. We love that he sets us free. We love that, he, that he'll heal us. We love that he'll guide us. We love, we love all, and, and all of those things are wonderful. Those are all aspects of who Jesus is. He's also the king. And we need to remember that. And it can be hard for us at times to yield fully to him. Do you know the areas of your life where it's difficult for you to yield to Jesus as the king? Most likely, it's something that's very precious to you. And there's a, there's a fear there, just like for Herod. He's afraid. If I lose control, what happens? And the same thing is true for us. It's not necessarily that we want power in the sense of being able to rule. It's that we, we don't want to lose control. We trust ourselves more than we trust him. So maybe it's with your family, your children. Maybe it's with a different relationship. Maybe it's with your work, with your finances, with your future. I don't know. Where do you find it difficult to trust Jesus as king? I want to acknowledge that this morning, that just like Herod, we all have this temptation and this tendency to say, I, I'm going to sit here, actually. I want to, I'm, I'm not going to acknowledge, I'm even going to actively suppress Jesus as the king in my life. Like the religious leaders, we can all get complacent. We're used to a king who's not physically present. We know Jesus is the king. We know that intellectually, but he's not. We can't see him, can't hear him, we can't touch him. We don't see him tangibly ruling in our city, in our nation, and in our world. And so it's easy for us to see him as distant and then at some point not just distant, but disinterested. And then we get comfortable kind of calling the shots. We get comfortable living our life with, with the king as a, a memory at best, or you know, almost just a, a theoretical idea. Certainly not practically bearing on how we live our life. Like the Pharisees, we get comfortable with the routine of Jesus is far away, not as a king who's right here with us. Again, that idea that these Gentiles are traveling 900 miles to see a king that the Pharisees won't travel six miles to see. We can fall into that same trap. It's easy for us to become complacent and then to become neglectful. Do you know the things that lead you into that? Just the, the self-awareness there. For some people, it's when they get busy and they get stressed. Jesus gets backburnered. He's kind. He's patient. He's not demanding. He's, for, he's forgiving. He's always with us. And all of those things are true. And so it's super easy to take advantage of him. He's not yelling at us. He's not setting a deadline. He's not going to fire us. And so when we feel pressure from external sources, it's super easy for us to backburner Jesus. Because he is all of those things. He is gracious and merciful and patient and kind and forgiving. So is that, is that your ditch? When you get busy and stressed, you begin to do things on your own and he becomes secondary for you. And maybe when you're making certain types of decisions, that's when you want to, he, he, he kind of fades to the background. That whole idea of, well, this is just business. There's no such thing as just business. It's all his. Maybe there's certain people that when you're around, Jesus becomes a little bit less of a present king in your life. I don't know, but are you aware enough to know, hey, I can fall into those same traps. We don't necessarily want to sit back and just throw rocks. We want to be taught. These are the, these are the ways people respond to Jesus as the king. Some people try to kill him, Some, an active suppression of him. I can do that. Some people neglect him. I can do that. And we want to learn from the wise men. We want to seek him. We want to worship him. 
that whole idea of Jesus as king, one of the things you can keep in mind, sometimes we, that's a hard one for us. We don't live under a monarchy, and so it's hard for us to even, what does that actually even mean to live with Jesus as a king? We've talked about this before, the idea of rightly ordering our loves. I think that's maybe a helpful way of thinking through. Is it, is it do I have to, to walk away from all of these good things in my life, these good things that God has given to me? Not necessarily. There's, just, there's a recognition of, a, again, a rightly ordered love. And so that's Jesus first. He is the priority for us, and then everything else falls under him. And when those things get out of order, when we love anything more than we're loving him, then that thing becomes an idol, and ultimately it can't sustain and it can't support the weight that we're putting on it. It winds up getting crushed underneath the weight of our expectations. We wind up being disappointed. The command against idolatry, is it's, it's for us just as much as it is for him. Nothing else can sustain the weight of our lives. Only he can. So to rightly order your loves, think about those things that are really important to you. And what does it look like to place all of those things under this primary allegiance and primary love to him? But anyway, the wise men, they teach us, seek him and worship him. They, again, travel 900 miles foreign country, a a dangerous journey to worship a king that's not their king. He's a foreign king, and yet they still make the effort to get in front of him. What does it look like for us to seek? You know all the tools, prayer, reading the Bible, worship. You know all of those tools that we use in our pursuit of the Lord. Two things for you to keep in mind, discipline and desire. We need both of those, and there's an interplay. You can think of discipline as training and obedience. It's that capacity to do the right thing or to do the best thing even when you don't feel like it. And desire is that strong feeling of want for something or to want something to happen. You know what those two words mean. And we need both. And some of us tend to be disciplined people and some of us tend to be desire people. And you need to know yourself well enough to know which way you lean and then say, okay, well, how am I leaning back the other way? I'm more of a disciplined guy. I can get into a routine and I can follow it until I die. Never, ever, but I can also get in autopilot and I'm not engaging anything internally. I'm just waking up and, you know, like if we're talking about spending time with the Lord, I just, I wake up and I go through my routine. However, whatever that looks like, however long that is, there's discipline there, but is there heart level connection? So I've got to lean back towards desire. It's that prayer that we've been talking about from Ephesians 3, that we would know, God would give us power to know how wide and high and long and deep is his love for us in Jesus, this love that surpasses knowledge, that we would know, somehow know something that surpasses knowledge. So that's the prayer for me because I know the desire part of me can be a, a bit weaker and I can lean too much towards discipline. You may be the opposite. When you're into something, you're all in and nobody needs to tell you to do anything and you stay up late and you wake up early and you learn everything there is to learn until there's another new thing. And then you're on to that. People might accuse you of phases That's just a phase. So if that's you, you may be kind of the desire person. So what does discipline look like? So how do you continue to seek when you don't feel like seeking? How do you continue to seek when that initial burst of energy and emotion has faded? What are the tools that you're putting in place or the structure that you're putting in place? And I would just, again, we're all wired differently. One is not better than the other. You just need to know. If you tend to be a desire person and you or run a little short on discipline, then, then the, the structure is going to be important for you. Maybe the same time deal, and you're like, oh, so boring. But 
You probably need it. You probably need it. How's it working for you? Just grabbing whenever you can grab. Again, when you're, when you're feeling hot, everything is, is going really well. But in those other moments, those other days, and unfortunately, those other weeks and months, we, we quit seeking. And so I just, I'd encourage you, if you need some help about that around the structure piece, I don't want to spend a ton of time on that this morning. Uh, you can reach out to your small group leader. You reach out to the staff. Any of us would be happy to sit down with you and kind of talk through some practical ways, maybe of adding a bit of that spiritual structure to your life so that you've got a channel for the desire to run uh, in. And then also when the, when the wise men get to Jesus, they worship him. They bring in these gifts and all their gifts fit for a king and they kneel before him. So these are grown men, powerful Rich men, and they're kneeling before an 18-month-old. Have you ever done that? No, neither have I. But that's what they do. They're acknowledging that Jesus is the king. And again, he's not even their king. Well, he is their king. They just don't know he's their king. They're Gentiles, and he's a king of the Jews. And yet, that's the word. They kneel. They bow before him as an 18-month-old or a 2-year-old. And they bring in these gifts, again, that are fit and appropriate for a king. When I think about worship, there's a couple of things that I think about. One is that there's nothing is wasted on Jesus. Remember the story of Mary at the end of Jesus' life? That last week she uh, anoints him with oil, breaks open this, this jar, this bottle of expensive perfume. And some of the disciples led by Judas say, why this waste? You're wasting this perfume. It could have been sold and the money given to the poor. That whole idea, there's nothing that we can waste on Jesus. If worship is giving Jesus what, or giving Jesus his due, well, what is not his due? What is there that's too costly for him if he's God and king? And the answer is nothing. He's worth our lives. Whatever it is for us, whatever we're giving to him, it can't be wasted on him because he's worth it. And at the same time, I would say, He doesn't waste anything. I don't know how he uses what we give, but he tends to use the things that we give. This is speculative. We don't know. Joseph and Mary and Jesus, after this encounter with the wise men, they're out. They leave. An angel says, y'all have got to get out of town. Herod's angry. He's going to try to kill uh, Jesus. And so they go to Egypt, and they live as refugees for either several months. Many people think they live for three years in Egypt as refugees. How do they make a living? Probably on the gold and the incense and the the frankincense and the myrrh that they were given by the wise men. They didn't know that. They just brought brought these gifts that are appropriate for a king. Again, this is speculative. But it is pretty cool to think, hey, those very gifts are what funded this trip to Egypt and what allowed them to live as refugees until they were able to come back. Nothing's wasted on him and nothing's wasted by him. The things that we bring to him, whether that's in this room when we're singing and we're bringing our hearts and our minds and our emotions and our bodies before him, or your money and your time and your gifts that you're giving to him Monday through Friday, nothing's wasted by and nothing's wasted on. He's worthy of all of those things. Sometimes Bo talks about this idea that the worship that we bring God today, it's, it, we can only do it today. If worship is me bringing God, again, my heart, my mind, my emotions, my body, well, I'm going to be different next week. Think about last week to this week. This, the, the different circumstances, the different frame of mind, the different emotions that you have this Sunday versus last. And when you choose this Sunday 
to acknowledge Jesus as king, when you choose this Sunday to acknowledge Jesus as worthy, when you choose this Sunday to, you know, it's different to acknowledge Jesus as a healer when you have COVID and when you don't. It's different, isn't it? It's a different level of what worship looks like. Neither one is better than the other. It's just different. And so recognizing what we're offering him today is unique and it's special because today is the only today we're going to get. And tomorrow's a different day. And we'll, we're, in a sense, going to be different people tomorrow. And so then we choose to worship him tomorrow. Again, that's a unique expression. And he's worthy of all of those unique expressions. So as we close today, a couple of things for you to be thinking about. That's a lot the day after Christmas. Your brain's probably a little bit foggy. So you just grab onto one of these things. Appropriate response to a king. We need to recognize, acknowledge, you know what? I can, try to, I can try to suppress him as the king of my life. There are areas where I want control. Why don't you all go ahead and close your eyes. We'll just pray through these things. That's probably the best. Holy Spirit, would you speak to us? Would you bring conviction where it's needed in the hearts of everyone in this room? So let's just ask these questions. God, where am I? suppressing you as king. Just ask him that. Is there an area of my life where I find it very difficult to allow you to exercise full control and see if he brings something up? And if he does, I'd encourage you to repent. God, I acknowledge I'm doing that. That's a hard one for me to let go of. I pray that you would forgive me. I want to trust you in this area. Would you give me grace to do so? Second. God, is there, are there circumstances in my life when I tend to become complacent? Where I neglect you? See if you bring something up. And you, might, you may be in one of those seasons right now. God, I confess I've done that. I backburnered you. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Would you give me grace to seek you first? And pray something like this. God, I want to be like the wise men. I want to seek and I want to worship. I want to seek you out. I acknowledge sometimes it's not easy in this world that we live in to get a bead on you. But we want to seek you out. So would you stir within me a deeper desire to do that? And would you also give me the discipline to seek you when I don't want to seek you? When I find you and you promise that if I seek you with all my heart, I will. I want to give you what you're due. I don't want to hold anything back from you. I want to give you my heart, my soul, my mind, my body, my strength. I want to give you my time and my money. I give you my talents and my gifts. It's all yours. Open-handedly, I want to bring those things to you and acknowledge you're worthy of all of it. Whatever you choose to do with it or not do with it, you're worthy of all of it. God, my prayer for each one of us, kids, students, and adults, as we wrap up 2021 and begin to look towards 2022, that we would make a commitment here and now 
to acknowledge you as king in the practicalities and the dailiness of our life, not just kind of in a theoretical, abstract way, but feet on the ground, eyes wide open to say, Jesus, you're the king. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. 